Okay, we're coming to the end of uh, Malachi, the last uh, one today. Uh, in the uh, autumn, we'll start something completely different, looking at uh, big themes about God. Uh, if you've ever been in a Christian bookshop and there's been a big book that says doctrine or systematic theology on it, well, that's what we're going to do, but we'll make it more fun than the big book looks like it's going to be. Uh, in the autumn. So what are, what are the big things the Bible says about our big God? And that will take us right through until Christmas. Our small groups will, uh, will uh, uh, follow the theme as well. So if you're not plugged into a small group, then you've got the summer uh, to organize that ready for September. Uh, again, see Katie and she'll be able to help you in the next few weeks to find yourself a group if you don't know of one to go to. Uh, talking of small groups, uh, one group asked, you know, at the end of uh, the study that you did this week, there was a question to talk about uh, various uh, revivals that are taking place both now and around the world. And the question was, where can I find out about such things and all that we can share them and encourage them? Well, I put a few things on the blog uh, a few days ago. It's far from exhaustive, but it's a, a few places where you can start just to read a bit more and think a bit more about what God's doing in different parts of uh, uh, the world. If nobody in your group has access to uh, the internet, then see Margaret Smith and uh, she'll be able to help you out with whatever you need. Okie dokie. So, here we go. Last one. Will revival come? Is there an Elijah in the house? I hope you've had a love-hate relationship with uh, Malachi. We love the promise. We love the longing that God would come in revival-type power, that God would pour out his blessing, so much blessing that you won't have enough room to contain it. We love that. And in that sense, Malachi's inspired our hope and encouraged us. But also, it's a disturbing book. If we really allow it to speak to our hearts, it's a troubling word. It challenges us and disturbs us and knocks quite hard on the walls of our comfort zone. We've been asked to think about some difficult things over the weeks. And as we come into land at the end of the book, Malachi kind of says as a reminder, well, how serious are you about all this then? How serious are you? Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. Because in essence, what Malachi has been doing is saying to the people, if you are serious about God's blessing, then you have to get serious all over again about the demands, the call that God makes on your life. All the stuff that God gave through Moses, Malachi has been going back to in different ways and saying, if you, if you want it, then you need to be serious about what God's asking of you. And that's been the story, isn't it, through the book. I'll open it in front of you if you haven't got it. It's good to see it there to remind ourselves of what's in these just few short verses. Remember how we began in Malachi uh, chapter 1 uh, with that great call that God loves us, God still loves us. They were going, well, perhaps God doesn't love us anymore because he's not around like he used to be. He's not blessing like he used to bless. Maybe God's love has waned. Maybe he's abandoned us. And Malachi comes with this really powerful word. So no, you have to understand God doesn't change. He loves you like he always has. But what's changed is not his love for you, but your response to that love. 
And so he goes on to talk about worship from verse 6. Remember they were bringing blemished sacrifices. They were kind of saying to God, well, any old lamb will do. And so they'd go out to their sheep and they'd go, well, which one is diseased or limping or crippled that won't get us much money at market? We'll bring that one to worship. And that's what they were doing. (laughs) And they were wondering why God wasn't blessing them. It wasn't that God's love towards them had changed, but their response to that love had changed considerably. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, Malachi goes, well, you know, the priests, the priests are just not doing what priests are supposed to do. The priests were supposed to be an example, and they weren't being an example. In fact, the priests were behaving so badly, the language is all about cow dung. Use your imagination. God was not very impressed with the leaders that were doing their own thing. And then, just in case the people were about to get complacent, goes on to the second part of chapter 2 and talks about your relationships. And it picks on your relationships at home because they're often the hardest. They happen behind closed doors, so not many other people see or know about them, but they are hardest relationships. And Malachi goes, what are those relationships like? What's your marriage like? What are you like with the wife of your youth? Are you still with the wife of your youth? Or have you lost faith with her? Or worse, maybe, are you still in the same bed, but you still lost faith with the wife of your youth? And when you're thinking about who you're going to marry, are you going to marry people that worship and serve foreign gods? Or are you going to remain faithful to the call through Moses that goes right through the scriptures about finding a partner that loves God in the same way and is committed to serving God in the same way that you are? Hard things to hear, but it's there. And and, and Malachi is saying, well, if you want the blessing, you need to get serious about these things. And so we get to chapter 3 with a bit of relief with the great promise. If you start seeking me by sorting these things out, see, I will suddenly come and the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. In the second part of chapter 3, God says about tithing. It says, you're robbing me because you're not sorting out your tithes and your offerings. And the people go, how can we be robbing God? And God says, it's simple. You're not doing what I've asked of you. And so it wasn't that God's love had waned, but that their response to his love had waned. God had given them everything and they were being stingy with what they were giving back and still wondering why there was no blessing. And then the second part of uh, chapter 3 towards the end was that they had fostered this heart of cynicism that said something like, well, God doesn't do what he used to do. He won't do that here, you know. And instead of building one another up in faith, they were kind of knocking each other down with cynicism and they needed to get out that scroll of remembrance, you might uh, recall, about all the things that God had done for them in order to reinvigorate their faith. And so then we come to land in chapter 4 where, quite simply, Malachi is saying from God, there's this choice. You either sort it out, get serious about all this stuff. It's not that I won't come, but that when I do come, if you don't sort it out, it will not be the kind of coming you're looking for. It will be in judgment rather than in revival. And that's where we are as he comes into land. He's going, how serious are you? How serious are you going to take this book? How serious are you going to take the demands written within it? And in a sense, we can have had a great time studying Malachi, but that's not the issue now at the end of the day. The issue of it is whether we'll listen, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. Will we listen to this word? Why? Well, for two reasons, at least two. The first is that it's God's word. Remember that word oracle right at the beginning? Very strong word. 
If you say I'm speaking an oracle from the Lord, you are saying that my life is dependent upon the truth of what I'm saying. Malachi wasn't being flippant. This wasn't a sermon that he'd written on the back of an envelope late on a Saturday night ready for Sunday morning. There are ministers that do that, you know. Dreadful. Um, that kind of thing. He was, he was saying, no, this is the whole weight of everything that God's pouring into my life. This is an oracle. My whole life depends on the truth of these words. If these words are not true, you can take my life. That's how serious they are. And we have to ask ourselves, is this God's word for us? Is this God's word about worship and, uh, and leadership and relationships and giving and, and heart attitude? Is this God's word for us? Or, or to put it even more personally, is this God's word for you? And me, of course. Is this God's word for you and me? And if it is, then what will we do about it? But also, secondly, listen to these words because there is this choice. God is coming to his church. Whether we like it or not, he will come. Will he come in revival or will he come in what, Charles, uh, what uh, Arthur Wallace regards or calls the solemn alternative to revival? A revival of religion, says Charles Finney, is indispensable to avert the judgments of God from the church. And so we are asked the question, what will my response be? And in these final verses, Malachi says, hey, you can do something about it. You want to know how to respond? Well, this is how you do it. You can become an Elijah. You can become an Elijah. God longs to raise up Elijahs. God promises to raise them. Will you be an Elijah that God will raise up. What will uh, an Elijah do? What do Elijahs do? Well, they prepare the way. They get ready. And uh, lots of Old Testament verses about getting ready. This is one from Hosea about breaking up your unplowed ground, sorting things out, which is what Malachi's been on about. For it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Will you be an Elijah that prepares the way? Now, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, and after he died, they grew up in Judaism, the, uh, the faith of the Old Testament people. They believed in God like we do. They were from Judah, hence the word Judaism. And uh, this whole idea grew up around the figure of Elijah that he would come and prepare the way. So, for example, when they celebrated their great feast of Passover, at the end of the Passover meal, the children, well, they'd say a grace, for example, at the end, they'd give thanks at the end of the meal, which included a prayer that Elijah would come, the children would get down off the table, they'd go and open the front door of the house as a sign that Elijah might come, and with him he would come to prepare the way of the Lord. God wants Elijah's in his church that will prepare the way for his coming. And that's the final challenge here. Obviously, 600 years later, there was an Elijah-type figure, wasn't there? In fact, they said of John the Baptist that he's come in the spirit of Elijah. Why? Because John's role was to prepare the way for Jesus for his earthly life and his earthly ministry. But that's not the only Elijah that there can be. You can be one 
and I'm called to be one too. Someone who by their life, their prayer, and their witness, and the longing of their hearts, prepares the way for what God wants to do. So how do you do that? How do you prepare the way? Well, I'd like us to go to a verse tucked right back in the Old Testament. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It's page 442. Just, just turn to it. Uh, would you indulge me for a moment that you're still with me by uh, turning to it? Or if you're not turning to it, just flick the pages a little bit and I'll think that you're still with me, even if you're not, and uh, I'll feel better. Uh, so page, get on with it. Thanks, Bob. That's a healthy reminder. Uh, I'll just get on with it. Page 442, uh, when everybody has found it. Uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 7 and verse uh, 14. The situation is this. Solomon has just built the temple. And God is speaking to Solomon about some important things that he needs to know. And in here is a promise about how to be ready for God to come in power to his temple and to his people. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, that's what an Elijah does. And Elijah, firstly then, takes responsibility. If my people... Which is exactly what Malachi has been saying. If these people, the people of God, if they do something about it, then revival will come. Now, it's easy for us to think it's everybody else's responsibility, isn't it? Ipswich would be a much better place if everybody came to church. Ipswich would be a much better place if all those good people out there didn't wash their cars on a Sunday or go to the car boot sale, but came into church or started doing X, Y, and Z. As if the responsibility lies with them. God says, no. I'm holding you responsible first. It's not that they're not responsible. It's not that God's never going to hold them to account. But in God's purpose for the world, he holds his church responsible first. Now's a good time to opt out of church if you were thinking about it. He holds us responsible first. If you want to see revival come, if you want to see God move in mighty power, here in Chronicles, the same in Malachi, in other parts of the Scriptures too, God holds us responsible first. If my people. Same was true for the people of Israel wandering around the desert. They spent 40 years before they received the blessing and went into the promised land because they were just going around in circles doing their own thing. Sometimes church is like that, just going around in circles doing our own thing. And God says it it begins with you. When you get your act together, then you can walk into the promised land. When we get our act together, then God can pour out his blessing. But nevertheless, the responsibility starts here. And as Isaiah put it, it's it's like this. You've got to look for the new thing that God's doing and you've got to get ready for it. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. It might have been fantastic in the past. It might have been the bee's knees in the past. But it's the past. And you can't live in the past. Forget it. See what I'm doing. And welcome it. Embrace it. Prepare for it. Receive it. 
be ready for it. So John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. So did old man Simeon, who spent his whole life saying, I'm getting old now, but I'm just waiting till he comes. I'm just waiting till he comes. I'm just waiting. He was ancient. I'm just waiting till he comes. Then he came, then he died. His whole life was about, I'm just getting ready to receive the Messiah. The 120 in the upper room in Acts that we looked at at the beginning of this year, they're there praying. What are they doing? They're preparing the way for the Spirit for his coming. The Spirit brings the presence, the reality of Jesus. There they are, 120 of them, praying, getting ready. They're Elijah-type figures. And so we could go on through the whole of the Bible. So, will we take responsibility? It's easy to moan, isn't it? It's easy to moan about everything that's wrong. It's easy to switch on the radio today or the news or whatever or read the paper and moan about if, if only they didn't do that, if only they were different, if only they this whatever. And God maybe says, if only my church. And we might say, hang on, we might feel a bit indignant. Well, hang on, God, at least we're trying to do something here. God says, no, if only my church will really allow me to break them, to mould them, that they might worship me from the depths of their heart, that they might have leadership that's true and honourable, that honours God's word, that the people might get their relationship straight before God, that they get all this stuff, if only, comes from heaven. So an Elijah takes responsibility. Secondly, an Elijah humbles themselves, him or herself. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And that's really hard, isn't it? Because most of us here are not sure we really want to humble ourselves because that means I've got to give my life to God and it's got to be his choice and not mine. And we're scared witless, most of us, myself often included, that if I give myself to God, he'll ask me to do something I don't want to do. Nope, just me. In fact, you know, we talk sometimes jestingly, don't we, about deciding the places we don't want to go to because we know that's where God's going to send us. As if he's somehow sadistic in his uh, approach to uh, spreading us throughout the earth. Do we, do we really want to, to be broken, to be that, that it's all God's? It means my money, it's all God's. My house, it's all God's. It's, it's all God's. My relation, all gods. My work, all gods. My days, all, all gods. Do we want that? Actually, I'm not sure we, we know whether we do or not. We kind of half do and we half don't. We're like the, 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 the father who wanted to believe the healing for his son but couldn't quite. And he said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want to be humble, but help the most of me that probably doesn't. But Elijah is someone who says, I, I, I'm going to give my life to this because it matters. If the only thing I've achieved in the whole of my life is I've got ready for the king to come, wouldn't, hey, would that be something? It's, it's worth so much more. But we live as if so many other things are so much more important. God, would you humble us? Dare we pray? We might not like what he does if we prayed that prayer. And Elijah humbles uh, uh, him or herself and Elijah prays and seeks if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. That's a hard thing to do as well, isn't it? The psalmist is full of times of prayer and seeking. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now that's not always our experience, is it? 
get up in the morning, first thing is our time with God. Are we thirsty for that time with Him? We're not always. Are we thirsty to be with the people of God in worship? Are we thirsty to hear His word? We're not always. We're not always. And we want to pray again, Lord, I'm thirsty, but increase my thirst. Do we yearn like the psalmist who said, all I want at the end of the day is to be in the presence, the courts of the Lord, and my heart and my flesh cry out to God that I might be there. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. So there's this humbling, there's this longing, but an Elijah also turns from wickedness. And this is quite hard too, because we don't like to think that we're wicked. Because we're too busy thinking about all the other people that are wicked. And if only the wicked people out there would sort out their wickedness, then our world would be a much better place. And God goes, no, what about you in, in the church, the people of God? What about you lot sorting out your wickedness first? And that's the call of Malachi. Selwyn Hughes wrote this about this verse, and uh, uh, the late Selwyn Hughes, who, uh, uh, who writes every day with Jesus, who wrote every day with Jesus, and, uh, and all of that. Can it be true that God's people have wicked ways? Perhaps the Lord meant careless ways or formal ways, surely not wicked ways. The Bible says wicked ways. Perhaps we Christians have learnt to so rationalise some of our actions and our behaviour that we do not realise quite how wicked they are. The tendency in this day and age is to let ourselves off lightly whenever we have done wrong. We use such euphemisms as, well, the only one I hurt was myself. Or it isn't all that important. But any violation of a biblical principle is immensely serious. When we pass on a juicy bit of gossip concerning someone who has erred and strayed, that's a wicked way. When we criticise and condemn those who have spiritual oversight over us, rather than bring them before God in prayer, that is a wicked way. When we wound others by our words or actions and fail to ask their and God's forgiveness, that is a wicked way. When the acquisition of money dominates our thinking and crowds out eternal things, that is a wicked way. When we watch degrading films and read morally debilitating literature, this is a wicked way. Turn. Turn from your wicked ways. Humble, prayerful seekers who turn from their wicked ways. Anyone want to be an Elijah? Then, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a big then, isn't it? It's like the buts of the Bible, the neverthelesses. If, but, if, then. What about it? That's what the Lord said to Solomon. That's what uh, the whole word of Malachi is about. If, then. That's what the writers of the Hebrews wrote. Be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If, then. Seek me and you will find me. If, then. And so here it is. Are there any Elijahs in the house? Otherwise, otherwise, if there are no Elijahs, if no one is raised up and prepares the way 
What does it say at the end of Malachi? What's the final word? I'll strike the land with a curse. And it's exactly the same, sorry, you've probably turned away from it now, it's exactly the same in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 7.14 were those verses that we just had. Let me read to you, they're on the screen as well. 2 Chronicles 7.19 following. But, so if my people do this, then I will do that. But, if you turn away, if you say, no, this isn't for us, and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you, and go off and serve other gods and worship them, and Christians serve other gods and worship them, you know, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I've given them. I will reject this temple I've constructed for my name. I'll make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. A byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. I wonder whether that's already happening to God's church in our country. Are we not so often a byword or an object of ridicule? Is Jesus Christ a word, uh, two words that are honoured in our nation? No. Is the church lifted up in popular culture as an august establishment for the good of the nation? Hello? No. We are a byword. We are an object of ridicule. We are a laughing stock. Your average vicar portrayed on the television is well-meaning but bumbly, absent-minded, slightly overweight, giggly, wimpish sort of uh, person with a secret weakness for sherry and cream cakes. Your average Bible-believing Christian, though, is just as nutty as if you've washed your brains away. For too many, the church is a joke. It serves no real purpose anymore. It is an object of scorn and ridicule. Noel Edmonds is on record as saying the church is the dullest experience we have in this country. To which I would reply, well, it's right up there with deal or no deal then. (laughs) We've got the Vicar of Dibley. The only reason the Vicar of Dibley is funny is that it's true. If there was no truth, it wouldn't be funny. Maybe, maybe we're experiencing something of the judgment because we've not been humble and prayerful and hungry enough and holy enough. Now there's a thought. If you look at today's church in our country, Humanly speaking, you would say she has had it. We live in a post-Christian era. The likelihood of the church being strong again seems to be against the odds. If I was an atheist commentator, having no ability to understand God's sovereign purpose, then I could easily write the church off with good statistical evidence to suggest that she is in such fatal decline that she will never rise again. The circumstances in which the church would be likely to flourish are so unlikely to repeat themselves in our nation that it will move towards complete extinction. That could be the story. That could be the story. Worryingly, after Malachi's word, it went silent for how long? 
600 years. But it's not the only story, is it? Paul writes in the New Testament that all God's promises are yes and amen. There is much hope because all God's promises are true. And what Malachi is saying, will you put your life on the promise? That God will do this stuff in your day and in your time. There is hope. We have reason to be incredibly hopeful because the same God who's revived his church over and over can and will do it again. D.M. Panton writes, It is most significant that since the Reformation, revivals have recurred with increasing frequency. Again and again, God has rescued that which has gone beyond all human aid. What could have saved the church but these gracious interventions of almighty power? I can't see much that will save the church except God's power. Can you? And so we are ripe for a move of God. And he says, if, then. If, then. How desperate are we? Seems that we're pretty desperate. Revival, said Peter Lewis, comes to a desperate church, not a triumphalistic one. All we need is some Elijahs willing to lay their life for these things. Willing to say, okay, whatever else I'm doing in this world, I'll do this. I'll be that Elijah. I'll give myself to preparing the way for God's coming. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God. Don't know what more to say, really. That's kind of Malachi done. It's over, finished. And we could close the book and we could move on and do something else next time. And still maybe church would, don't know, at best, carry on. People out there on Sundays would do their own thing. How many people have gone to a lost eternity today? I don't know. Dread to think, really. Or... Or we could say, God, stir something in us that is so from your heart, that is so unstoppable, because everything that starts in heaven can't be stopped, that is so unstoppable, raising up Elijah's in this place and all over this town, this nation, that we might seize a new, fresh, mighty move of God. That hundreds of thousands of people would come into the kingdom that not only would the church be changed, which is just a little byproduct, but the whole of the nation would be changed. And they go, hey, do you remember 2009, 2010 in the UK? 2011? What about it? God says, if, then. Let's pray. Let's pray.